Good afternoon. It's Friday the 4th of March 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, right. We are going to get straight on. Lots to cover today. So let's uh, put this on screen. First of all, uh, the government announcing even more sanctions. Uh, this time they're saying two leading oligarchs sanctioned, uh, Alisher uh, Uzmanov uh, and Igor Shuvalov. Uh, and uh, what are they saying? They're calling them Putin associates. They're saying that uh, uh, Uzmanov has had significant interests in English football clubs, Arsenal and Everton. He owns Beechwood House in Highgate. He's worth an estimated 48 million uh, and the 16th century Sutton Place estate in Surrey. Uh, and sorry, the, the uh, house in Highgate's worth 48 million. Um, and uh, Shivalov, uh, his assets include two luxury apartments in central London worth an estimated 11 million. Uh, he's the core part of Putin's inner circle. Uh, headed up Russia's bid for the 2018 Football World Club uh, World Cup bid. Um, so, uh, what did uh, our illustrious, wonderful, intelligent uh, foreign secretary have to say? Our message to Putin and his allies has been clear from day one: invading Ukraine would have serious and crippling economic consequences. Sanctioning Uzmanov and Shuvalov Shiv uh, sends a clear message that we'll hit oligarchs and individuals closely associated with the Putin regime and his barbarous war. Uh, we won't stop here. Our aim is to cripple the Russian economy and starve Putin's war machine. So they went on to announce uh, that they're establishing an oligarch task force of ministers and officials from departments, including the Home Office, Treasury, Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Dep Department for Level Leveling Up, Housing and Communities, and the National Crime Agency. And this expert group will coordinate cross-government work to sanction oligarchs, uh, helping build cases against the list of oligarchs it has identified as targets. So I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Patrick, but it does seem like uh, they have waited an awful long time to get to this point if they're really determined to to push through with the uh, sanctioning individuals. That's right. Yeah. And normally, you know, uh, the, the oligarchs are in London, Mike, the really wealthy ones. Um, many of them uh, actually are not uh, particularly pro-Putin. Okay, that's one of the reasons why they're in London with their millions or billions. Uh, so, and what happened in the last round of sanctions as well, when they start sanctioning these individuals and they transfer their assets back to Russia, uh, then they deposit them in Russian banks and they become liquidity for the Russian financial system. So right. they do drive them closer to uh, uh, Russian government or closer to Putin um, after they've destroyed their uh, their businesses and, and destroyed their finances for alleged ties, or in some cases it could be very tenuous, but you, you always hear the term inner circle. But what is that really? I yeah, mean, well, exactly. It's, it's like a, a highly likely intelligence. I mean, do you really trust any of these uh, um, claims that are being made? Who knows? Um, well, look, uh, I'm going to apologize to Ian Davis because he is also with us today. Uh, Ian, let me just, uh, by way of apology, bring you onto the program and, and ask for your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, if sanctions aren't going to work in the way that um, I think the West are presenting them, um, my thoughts are that the likely outcome of sanctioning will be ultimately to push Russia and China closer together. Um, and also, you know, there are, you know, things, things like the SWIFT system, the Russians have got an alternative system, Chinese have got an alternative system to that as well. Uh, and as Patrick was saying, you know, the movement of capital back to back to Russia um, will further bolster their ability to withstand um, sanctions. Um, so, uh, 
you know, and I think we're going to go on to discuss other reasons why um, that that relationship, that traded trading relationship between Russia and China. Obviously, it will be impacted by by the sanctions, but, you know, and certainly on Russian Central Bank, those kind of sanctions. But uh, the outcome of that could be very different from um, the way that it is portrayed in the West. Uh, yes, and we will be coming onto that in a bit more in a second. And also on the oil price issue, uh, there's, a, there's a push and pull that goes on there, Mike, as oil prices are high. In uh, you know the rubles crashing, you probably saw it lost twenty percent of its value uh, in the last week. It's you know totally fallen off the cliff, recovered a little, and then sort of crashed a little bit right. last night. But with oil, uh, oil is usually uh, usually sold in dollars and euros. So from an internal point of view, when the uh, ruble crashed, and this was what Russia did back in twenty fourteen after Crimea, yes. they were able to meet their balance of payments domestically, even with a devalued mm. uh, ruble. Okay, because of the, uh, the 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 spike in oil prices. Okay, so as long as oil prices are high, uh, the irony is, and the sanctions might also drive oil prices up because if there's a constriction of supply uh, in the West, you know, Russia does quite fine uh, in terms of making its balance of payments domestically. That's not to, even to 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 mention the sovereign wealth fund or the uh, the money that they've saved up over the years preparing for this round of sanctions. Right. And of course, uh, you're saying Russia, Russia will do fine with a high oil price. Who won't do fine with a high oil price? That's us. Uh, on the way into the office this morning, one filling station in Plymouth was selling a, a litre of uh, diesel at 163 already. Uh, so, so this is the sanctions that are placing, placed on Russia are having a direct impact on our lives, actually. Um, and that's that is a cost that that uh, the British population is going to have to bear. It's going to be the same in in Europe and the United States as well, if no doubt. And gas too, natural yes. gas, yes, heating, energy bills, same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, okay, let's move on then, because uh, the uh, NATO uh, foreign ministers are meeting today. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg uh, leading this uh, this. Um, if we just put yes, thank you. So uh, statement uh, by the NATO Secretary General and the US Secretary of State on the meetings uh, of NATO foreign ministers taking place right now. Uh, so Blinken is there, of course. Uh, Liz Truss will be there, no doubt. The question I have, and of course we'll see later on in the day, Patrick, but uh, uh, interested in your prediction here, your forecast. Will they do anything other than, will it just be another load of rhetoric of the same type? Are we going to get rinse and repeat of the same formal words that we've had over the last few weeks? Or is NATO actually going to do anything at this point? No, they'll say we're going to reinforce our uh, defense of our European allies, our NATO members, and uh, send a message to Putin that we're serious about our collective defense. An attack on one is an attack on all. I know the script. Yes, have we I all know the script. Have I, I missed I, anything? I don't, not much. That's all they're going to do. They played their hand with sanctions, and now it'll just be like, we need to strengthen NATO. And of course, the military-industrial complex is salivating right now. Yes. And because all of those budgets of all those different NATO member states, they'll be lobbying hard in Brussels and in the capitals of these various countries and in Washington to increase military spending to deal with, guess what? The Russian threat. Because Russia's going to invade the world, you see. Russia's got enough military to invade every country in the world, and Putin will like, physically take over the planet. So, uh, yeah. Well, he, he will, but uh, the question is, will he nuke it first? And so we're getting continuing headlines. Here is the uh, BBC, Ukraine nuclear plant, Russia in control uh, after shelling. And if we look at the Daily Mail, well, we can rely on them for the more 
uh, insightful uh, headline, I say with heaps of sarcasm. Uh, Boris Johnson says the security of the whole of Europe has been put at risk by Russia's attack on Ukrainian nuclear power plant as Putin's men spark blaze and seize control of the complex. So what have they actually done here? Uh, they uh, are allegedly in control of this uh, nuclear power station now, but that is uh, really dangerous because it means we've turned this into a nuclear conflict. Did they actually start the blaze? This is a question. If you read into this story, it does help to actually read into the story, which few people do. I right. got a lot of people that were going crazy this morning, sending messages saying, look what Putin just did. Uh -huh. Okay. If you read the story, a fire broke out in a training building outside the perimeter of the nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. So a fire broke out in gunfire and some shelling in the area. Nobody knows what caused the fire. It's not reported specifically. It's not in the facility itself. It's outside the perimeter of the facility in a training building. Okay, so there's a few questions. Basically, is is my point there? And it's uh, so. But the headline is Putin attacks nuclear reactor, mm. and that does very well in terms of the global mainstream uh, and media. raising the, the the fear and the and, and so on. And the addendum to this is: you remember when this all kicked off when Russia first invaded? last week, there was a story that did the rounds on the mainstream media that Chernobyl radiation levels had spiked when Russia uh, was in the, in the vicinity of that nuclear power plant. Right. So the inference there was that Russia has done something to Chernobyl to release radiation to kill the Ukrainians. Uh, it turns out that was a fake story. Where, what was the source of it? It was a source within the Ukrainian uh, atomic energy agency. Mm. Nobody, it wasn't even a named source as far as I could see. But anyway, that did very well. It was at top of every news feed on Twitter and Facebook, Apple News, and that was a f basically a fake news story. So I'm just saying there's plenty of these stories that are going, there's stories that are half true, that are being over-exaggerated and blown up. So it's very difficult unless you're really, really discriminating uh, with what you're reading to, to, to know what's what. Uh, Ian. Yeah, I mean, we've just had, you know, nearly just over two years of, of what we know was a, a deliberate ploy to use fear to control us and to control our behaviour. Now that we're going into a different scenario, everyone seems to be, you know, not concerned about what was happening a, a, a month ago. It is, I would suggest, foolish to believe that the same control through the use of fear isn't still being applied in the context this time of a, a conflict in the Ukraine. Uh, yes, I completely agree with that. So, we'll, we'll get on to that in a few minutes, actually. Uh, indeed we will. Yes. So let's just uh, briefly look at, uh, because the uh, UK media isn't going to mention this, let's see what Sergei Lavrov was saying about this issue of uh, nuclear uh, powers and so on. He said it's important that under uh, Russia's initiative with its most active participation, a joint statement of leaders of the five nuclear powers uh, was developed and adopted on the 3rd of January um, by prevention of nuclear war and prevention of an arms race. He went on to say, you know, there, there is, it is of no benefit to, to Russia for there to be any kind of nuclear, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, strategic nuclear weapons or even tactical nuclear weapons. There's no, there's no benefit here. In fact, it, it just, it, it blows up the planet literally is, is basically what he was saying. And he went on to say, you know, Ukraine is Soviet nuclear technologies and delivery vehicles. We cannot but react to this danger. Uh, I can promise you that Russia is a responsible member of the international community determined to adhere to 
it's weapons of uh, mass destruction, non-proliferation commitments. And my question, Patrick, is uh, has Russia has Russia met its WMD commitments? How, do, how has the United States dealt with uh, non-proliferation issues in recent years? Um, they've just been ignoring it and ramping up the uh, development of tactical nuclear weapons. These are seen as a safe option by the U.S. Warhawk community, and they're on Fox News every five minutes, by the way. And by the way, there is an open debate now in America about nuclear strategy of how they can hit Russia and win and win a nuclear war, okay? That's an open debate that's not a secret anymore. So you're seeing this conversation happening more and more. It's very, very disturbing. So if there is a danger of uh, potential nuclear com uh, uh, com um, conflict, is it Russia or the United States and Britain that are pushing it? I don't know. Whoever's, whoever's pushing and developing tactical nuclear weapons, uh -huh. because they can be used and they can be set off and it can create it can create a, uh, a new world order, you know, an exclusion zone. Uh, it can also be used in a false flag capacity. I think in this atmosphere, if anything was detonated, who is the mainstream press, the global media going to blame? What, precisely, right. It's automatic who they're going to blame. Every politician will be up grandstanding and saying we need to either uh, uh, vaporize Russia or we need to basically uh, cordon off the planet, balkanize the planet into exclusion zones that look a lot like George Orwell's map in 1984. Well, let's bring on a map uh, then. Here is uh, Metro. And this morning they uh, had a headline saying, map shows those who support are against and are neutral in Russia's war. Uh, and the, the map was headlined, uh, Putin's allies around the world. Now this is uh, resulting from a United Nations General Assembly uh, meeting that took place yesterday and a vote. And I think 117 uh, countries voted uh, in favor of the uh, UNGA resolution, which was uh, really criticizing Russia for what it was doing in Ukraine. So let's just uh, bring the map on screen. Here it is. Uh, and you can see that uh, the uh, blue, the light blue color countries there are NATO countries. Obviously, the uh, light green teal sort of color uh, are co uh, people that uh, this map is alleging are against Putin. Uh, the fact that they voted for this resolution doesn't necessarily mean that they're against Putin as such. It means that they're uh, making a statement about this particular action. Uh, and then we've got the grey countries, uh, which are undeclared or neutral, so they abstained, and the red countries, which are Putin allies. So you've got uh, Belarus, uh, Venezuela, uh, Myanmar, uh, you've got uh, North Korea are the main, or oh, in Syria are the main red countries, so they, they voted against the resolution. But the grey countries are the ones that I'm particularly interested in, Patrick, because we've got Brazil and India uh, and China, in there, and of course, this these are the and South Africa, by the way, uh, which isn't labeled on the map, but South Africa uh, abstained. These are the BRICS countries, and the, the BRICS has been mostly forgotten by the Western media in the last uh, uh, couple of years. But in fact, it's it's pretty active. It well, it's active in the sense of look at that's not a coincidence. Uh, what do they represent there? Their neutrality basically is in op in opposition to this uh, full-on, full-throttle attack to destroy the Russian economy uh, and to demonize Russia in, in the global community. So the BRICS are uh, influential in that sense. But look at this map. Look at the way they framed it. Putin's allies around the world. So if you're pro-sanctions against Russia, it's not hurting Putin. Just be clear about that. It's hurting the people of Russia. They're the ones who are going to suffer. The average working-class Russian, middle-class Russian, 
person, a hardworking business person or whatever, mm. that's who's going to suffer from sanctions. The governments always continue, as do their security services, as do their police, as do their military. So the, 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 the delusion in the West is that if we sanction harder, that the people will rise up and overthrow their government and the evil dictator. And guess what? They've tried this in every single country, in Syria, in Iran, full-on embargo in Syria. This is now a full embargo in, uh, in Russia. Cuba, how did that work out? How long have they been under a full embargo? What, 70 years? Yes. 70 years. Did Castro ever leave, get overthrown? Did the people rise up? All it did was strengthen the resolve of those countries. Venezuela, they've embargoed Venezuela and absolutely destroyed their economy, ruined millions of lives in Venezuela. Is Maduro still president? I think he is. Yeah, he is. Last time we looked. So the sanctions are really, really effective, aren't they? No, this time they'll work. We just have to sanction harder. <laughs> this time they're going to work. Yeah. Yes, Ian. I think that's a very interesting observation that Patrick's made there about, you know, if you're the subject, if you're the deliberate subject of sanctions, it has this potentially, you know, you've taken those examples, it has this the impact on the populace of of stealing them against the person, the, 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 the bodies that are putting the sanctions on them. I wonder what the psychology will be like in, say, Europe, where the sanctions will have an equally deleterious effect on the people who live in Europe. We've already seen it, as you mentioned this morning, that the height gas prices, the height energy prices, food insecurity, when that starts to impact on them, and if they then realize that those sanctions are being placed against another nation state, but it's, it's having a, a big impact on them, will that, how will they react to their own governments doing that? Because essentially that's what, that would have been the situation. Japan. Sorry, we didn't, we didn't hear that, Patrick. Uh, sorry. Uh, so you, you, you were saying after Ian came off, you were saying, um, I can't remember what right. uh, we were talking about sanctions. Yes, um, and I was I was going to say about uh, World War II. Yes, the what led up to Pearl Harbor was a full embargo, right, and sanctions of Japan, cutting it off from the world market, cutting it off from the you know financial uh, uh, yeah. ties and and be able to do business internationally and unable to to buy and sell commodities, including fuel. And Japan felt at some point it had no other choice, no other choice but to do something to attack in this case. And then the the world got the war that they wanted at that yes, point. Yes. Don't think that this is all by accident. Sanctions is an act of war. And whatever comes after that, I guarantee you, the people who are, are far enough away that they feel they won't be hurt, they're the, they're the most to benefit. And we're talking about the financial institutions, the investors, the sharks the hedge funds, those are the people that engineered World War II, and those are the people that will engineer World War III, right. if it comes to that. Whatever limited fashion that war is, you can guarantee that's the power behind the throne, in my opinion, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, okay. Okay, now, and then, uh, well, a bit of confusion from Reuters here. They're, they're very confused here. They're saying, what happened to Russia's Air Force? U.S. officials, experts stumped. So apparently U.S. officials and experts are stumped because there isn't a general, uh, because of course in the past, Patrick, the NATO approach has just been to carpet bomb 
Yeah. Everything, right? This it, it's the US dominance, approach. Dominance of the air is, is absolutely key. This is the Western approach, but Russia doesn't seem to be doing this. And they're making the point in this article that the, the Ukrainian Air Force, for what it is, is still able to fly uh, as as normal. And uh, well, not really. They've lost a few. Sure, sure. Yes, yes. Yeah. But the but the point is that that, that there's they're, they're saying that there's no uh, they they are still flying even though they don't really have much of an air force left, right? But Russia's air force is not flying very much at all, and this is apparently confusing. Them. Well, this is Reuters, Rusi as well, and Rusi said the Rusi same thing. saying yes. this, and there's everyone's obliviating about this point like it's some sort of great mystery, and you have to just just use your common sense. What happened in the first 24 hours of the Russian invasion, uh, stroke military operation, as Moscow is calling it, they walked into Ukraine and they more or less seized all of the, a lot of the key strategic nodes of transport. And, and in the 48 hours, they had operational control over large portions of the country. They walked in. Ukraine can't even defend its borders. You don't need an air force. They took out their radar, some anti-aircraft, uh, capabilities as well, so they're slightly blind. So they don't need to. They've already blinded uh, the Ukrainian Air Force for the most part. They've hit military installations. So why why bring out your Air Force and risk losing uh, your you know state of the art uh, planes? Uh, and the the other thing is they probably don't even Russia hasn't brought its best kit out either. Okay, it's probably and nor its best soldiers. Right. Okay. So, and, and they're all trying to compare this with Syria. It is totally different than Syria. Syria was an anti-terror operation, and uh, the, the, the terrorists were embedded in uh, places like East Aleppo, yes. places like Homs, uh, and in Idlib as well. And this was a long uh, process and partnering with the Syrian uh, Air Force, also partnering on the ground with Hezbollah, and also Iranian special forces right. as well. So it's a totally different operation. It was very meticulous. And uh, the details of that air operation by Russia in Syria is best chronicled in Tim Ripley's excellent book called Operation Aleppo. That's Tim Ripley from the Sunday Times. So it's an excellent book. And I'm, I'm surprised that some of these mainstream journalists are uh, still scratching their heads. Russia will use its air force when it probably needs to. And it's not good optics. Uh, to be bombing. So the, th this is part of propaganda. This question that they've raised is a kind of a propaganda because mm -hmm. it infers that Russia wants to basically flatten all the civilian areas, okay? So yes, this did happen in the second Chechnyan war in, in Grozny. Mm -hmm. But again, you're dealing with a foreign uh, uh, jihadist insurgency uh, that was injected into Chechnya, okay? And again, that goes against the, the narrative that the West likes to paint. Although if you read the Rand Corporation's documents on Chechnya, they spell it out pretty much right. chapter and verse. Very good, a free PDF, by the way. Uh, the, the Rand Corporation, uh, Russia's two wars in Chechnya, uh, uh, an analysis looking back, it's an excellent document, yeah. Okay, and uh, okay, let's move on then to uh, Ukraine and its president, uh, the comedian. The comedian, this is, uh, this, is who, this is who we're dealing with here. Uh, he was doing uh, Euro Trash Vaudeville, uh, on Ukrainian television just two and a half years ago and decided to run for president. In fact, he's got some very rich oligarchs uh, who are bankrolling his production company, the political party servant of the people, yes. uh, also bankrolled by these oligarchs and who put him into this position. But effectively, he is a comedian. That is what his stock and trade is. And if you watch the press conferences from Zelensky, um, that's sort of exactly... Uh, 
what you're getting there. We might uh, we might have an interview with uh, what well, we do in a second with yes. CNN, but yes. but so the, the the West and the the fate of the world is in the hands of this comedian who has no experience in politics, economics, uh, military affairs, and in the last diplomacy, diplomacy, and, that, and clearly he's not very strong in diplomacy because he's not showed up to some of the negotiations. Right. Okay. He's he, and he, they keep changing the schedule, um, and then they're on again, off again. So it's a very frustrating. Thing I'm sure Washington is telling him to drag his heels uh, until they can get more foreign fighters into the field. That's another story uh, that we can talk about. Uh, yesterday, there were the headlines where that Zelensky was asking Putin for for meetings now, and, yeah. and and your response to me was, well, he keeps swinging backwards and forwards between this, so he doesn't really seem to have a plan. He seems to blow with the wind, as it were. No, he'll he'll play to the press when he does these kind of comical Ali type press conferences, right. remember Comical yes, Ali yeah, yeah. in the Iraq war. And so he'll say, he'll make these grand statements and say, I'm here, come talk to me. And this is just after he had, they had evaded negotiations mm -hmm. uh, a few days ago. So, but he's playing to the press and the press are saying, they're crying, they're saying, oh, they're crying. They're saying, this is so Churchillian. Oh, this, he's such a strong leader and all this stuff. So they've totally fallen for this guy uh, in the West. He has run his economy into the ground. He's just he's run the military into the ground after receiving billions of dollars of weapons in the last two years. He's a TV comedian. He can't run a country. Uh, but, not a bit of a salacious <laughs> one at that. And a salacious one. Well, we won't even play his skits. I'm sure every enough people have seen him circulating online. The sort of very, uh, I would say, disgusting uh, acts that he's done on on Ukrainian television. So he's not. Uh, He's run the political situation into the ground. He right. ran the Minsk Accords into the ground, which caused this uh, reaction by Russia. So who's to blame for the Russian invasion? The first person that people should be questioning is Vladimir Zelensky, because he brought the situation, the country, through his mismanagement and his like lack of political acumen, or who knows what his goal is. Maybe his, the people who put him in power, this was their goal. To bait Russia, who knows? Yeah. But anyway, uh, not everybody's impressed, Mike. Uh, okay. <laughs> speaking of the BRICS countries, let's look at uh, uh, Jair Bolsonaro here. This is what he's saying. They ask him, "Why won't you uh, refute, disavow Putin, and support Zelensky?" And he says, um, uh, uh, "Bolsonaro is refusing to sanction Russia. He's saying that Ukrainians trusted a comedian with the fate of a nation." Uh -huh. So that's Bolsonaro, straight talker. And uh, he's been giving some interviews, and one of them was with CNN. We'll this is Zelensky you're talking about? Zelensky, yes. yeah. The Zelensky interview with CNN with Matthew Chance, the, uh, the British uh, operative uh, at CNN based in Moscow. And Zelensky, a lot of people online were commenting that Zelensky looked like he wasn't in the right frame of mind. Right. Might have had a little bit of... Uh, some Maybe it was just after lunch or something? Yeah, maybe a few Russian vodkas. Uh -huh. Who knows? Maybe it was... You know, people said he seems drunk uh, in this interview, but we'll go ahead and let you decide. But we'll roll this. You sent your delegation to meet the Russians for talks. Yeah. Did anything substantial come out of that? Is there any hope as the world watches for diplomacy? They decided, they decided uh, to begin to speak about this situation. And I wanted, I, I really wanted, and I asked them, so you have to speak, first of all, you, everybody has to stop, stop fighting, and to go to that point from where it 
it was beginning, yeah. yes, it began five, six, today six, six days ago. Yes. I think th there are principal things you can do it, and that is very important moment. If you'll do this, and if those side is ready, it means that they are ready for the peace. If they don't ready, it means that you're just, you know, just... Mm, how, wasting time. time. And do you think you're wasting your time, or do you think they're ready? We'll see. Maybe he was just tired. Maybe he was, to be fair, he could have just been, uh, you know, tired and maybe he wasn't drunk. Uh, and he, English is not obviously his, uh, his, his forte. Yeah. Uh, so, but the, the point is, that's, that's not the statesman that you're used to seeing from different countries, you know, where their leader talks with knowledge and authority and they at least seem credible. He seems like he's acting. He seems like he's not, not doing a very good job of playing the actual president. That's the role he played before he ran for president. Mm. The top rated sitcom and, and was servant of the people in Ukraine. He played the president and then ran for president. Mm. And his political party is the same name as his show. Okay, so you think Trump was a reality TV star uh, getting into politics. This was just totally seamless. And a lot of people suspect that this uh, might have been an engineered uh, situation. He is literally playing a role. He's literally a hired actor uh, yes. for the job of president. Okay, well, let's move on then. And uh, well, the issue of mass formation psychosis, Patrick? Well, well how do you get so many people to back uh, a, a comedian and to basically uh, wave the Ukrainian flags, uh, hang the flags in the window, everyone's, the whole world is pivoted towards this and hating Russia. And we're saying this is mass formation uh, psychosis. And so this was a term that was recently introduced, reintroduced uh, into the public conversation by a professor from the University of Ghent yep. in Belgium, uh, Professor Matthias Desmet. And this was uh, in relation to COVID-19, the global pandemic, the total hysteria, uh, the people attacking the anti-vaxxers, uh, the masking and all of this stuff. All right. of this was under the banner of mass formation psychosis. And we have a a couple of uh, uh, key clips here. This is this is Professor Desmond explaining this. Now, I want you to listen carefully and see this. He's talking about COVID here, but can you apply this to this crazy anti-Russian hysteria and this kind of um, gushing support for Zelensky and Ukraine right now? Listen closely. You listen to the mainstream narrative, then you will hear that everything is about solidarity. You have to participate. You have to accept the vaccine. You have to respect social distancing because if you don't, you lack citizenship. Mm -hmm. You show no solidarity. So that's the most crucial thing always in mass formation. So that's the real reason, the real reason why people buy into the story, even if it is utterly absurd, is not because they believe in the narrative, it is because the narrative leads to the new social bond. That's the real reason. And then there is a fourth advantage. All the frustration and aggression can be directed at an object. And that object is the people who, for one reason or another, do not want to participate in the mass formation. That's typically, historically, 
time and time again, we see the same process. When a population, for instance, the really large scale mass formations as they happened during the French Revolution, which were not very large, but they were large. The large scale mass formations, which um, uh, uh, led to um, the emergence of uh, communism and Stalinism in, a, in a, the Soviet Union, the large scale mass formations, which led to uh, Nazi Germany, to the, to the emergence of, uh, of, uh, of the totalitarian state in Nazi Germany, they all shared the same characteristics. The population was exactly, um, these four conditions will, were fulfilled, and then a new kind of solidarity emerged. And all the frustration and aggression was channeled by directing, all the, uh, by directing it at, uh, at the people who, um, who did not want to participate uh, or who could. Yeah. So if you don't disavow Russia or you don't hate Putin, then you're a pro-Kremlin agent and you're the object of everyone's scorn. So what, what he said there is incredible. I mean, you can apply that to what we're seeing now. Yes, and I think his, his drawing parallels with Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany are absolutely correct. And we've seen that over the last two years. We look at the behavior of populations in the last couple of years. Um, we can, we can uh, absolutely understand better what happened in the 1930s in Germany, for example. Right. Yeah. Uh, Ian. There are uh, some comments going on social media at the moment from parents that are saying that school children have been asked to wear something blue or wear something yellow, blue and yellow, to show their solidarity with Ukraine. That we, we saw a, um, uh, uh, there's a, a clip also going around of an interview on an Australian channel um, where a, 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 it looks like something like a sort of question time format we'll where... We're going, to, we're going to play that later, Ian, actually. Oh, are you? Okay. Yes. I mean, but the, the point is, we are have some fundamental beliefs that underpin our democratic way of life, such as freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Um, we have there, whether we're in the US or the or or the U, or Europe or the or the UK, we have a constitutional framework that places these things. Uh, great value. They, these are the these are the fundamental principles upon which our society, hitherto for the last 150 years, has supposed to function. And yet, the power of this kind of manipulation, as as the professor was talking about there, this mass formation psychosis, is incredible. Because in order to be able to to simply fall into this these behavioral patterns we have to literally put those principles to bed we have to just forget about them and instead throw all our weight behind things that are essentially anti-democratic like the the shutting down of free speech there's nothing nothing in our society which has ever placed any value on that at all and yet suddenly over the last two years and now and now in this is just going off the charts now with the closing down of the media and so on people just seem to accept that like like nothing that they've ever based their entire lives on matters anymore it is incredible it is an incredible thing to be witnessing yeah. i think uh, <laughs> and the virtue signaling that's another term that people would yes. use but this is like a weaponized version of virtue signaling and it's just instantaneous and i think social media is the 
is this sort of incendiary uh, uh, agent yes. uh, that causes this brush fire. Now, the other thing that uh, Professor Desmond said is this can't be done without the mass media. So we have the mainstream media who are all on message, single message, single propaganda. Look at your newsstands today. It'll tell you what they want you to think. But now we have another one, social media. Social media will not only uh, force feed you on your feed which stories you need to look at, they will erase, deplatform, and censor any opinions or any stories which the, uh, the, the establishment or whoever's controlling the narrative uh, doesn't want you to, to read mm. or doesn't want you to see. Cancel, you'll be canceled uh, if you have an account on any of these platforms like Twitter or Facebook. Uh, people are receiving bans for uh, wrong speech on Ukraine right now. Uh, and we'll show a bit of that in a bit. It's quite shocking, yes. actually. Uh, so, But we need the media. Here's Professor Desmond explaining this. To be, uh, there need to be very specific conditions uh, before mass formation and totalitarian thinking emerges in a society. Uh, and these, in, these, these conditions are... Uh, as important as the, as the media itself. Uh, but that doesn't take away, without mass media, uh, you cannot create uh, um, um, mass formation or crowd formation uh, at a scale uh, as we experienced it now and as a scale as it has been experienced uh, shortly before uh, uh, the Second World War in uh, Nazi Germany and in the first part of the 20th century uh, in the Soviet Union. You need, uh, you need uh, mass media to, to create uh, uh, mass phenomena uh, at, at that scale. Uh, that's true, yes. And what else you need? You need political leaders who are the, the maestros of the narrative. Yes. So our houses of parliament, our Congress, they need to be virtue signaling. They need to set the tone of what the script is going to be. Um, so let's look at what the script is going to be, because uh, you know we've got the virtue signalers. Let's start with our uh, members of parliament. And the first thing to note here is that Lindsay Hoyle, of course, uh, the speaker, is wearing his blue and yellow ribbon. Uh, and uh, well, the, the Ukrainian ambassador was in the House of Commons uh, a couple of days ago, and this is what happened. This spontaneous, I don't think so, the whips were there making sure uh, that everybody was clapping. He got a standing ovation. Uh, here is mass uh, here is the mass psychosis right in front of us, right? Well, they're leading. Their job is to lead the mass psychosis. This is very similar to when Bibi Netanyahu shows up uh, in the U.S. Congress. Uh, he gets 40 standing ovations. Uh, you have to sit and stand more often than when you're at Sunday Mass. Uh, but uh, this is pretty much the same thing, but a smaller version. Okay, and so it's the, not just parliamentarians, of course. Uh, here is uh, the Prince of Wales and uh, the Duchess of Cornwall. Uh, visiting the Ukrainian community uh, at the Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral uh, and of course their virtue signaling and uh, therefore anybody that uh, is interested in what they're doing uh, gets the virtue uh, from from that but it's not just uh, it's not just the big players like the royal family it's uh, it's even as you were talking about Patrick social media and the so-called social media influencers so let's look at a couple of social media influencers here Robert Fripp and Toya Wilcox uh, their channel has become very popular for their uh, lockdown lunches on Sundays, uh, where Toya basically dances nude in front of the, uh, well, more or less, in front of the camera. Uh, and uh, so they were, um, Ukraine, we hear you, was the latest video from them. So the social media, the social media influencers, in inverted commas, absolutely pushing this as hard as they can. The government, of course, uh, running the uh, Ukraine humanitarian appeal, appeal through the uh, 
the various uh, uh, government appeals uh, programs, uh, and we've got people collecting, uh, you know, blankets and duvets and all kinds of stuff, uh, charities, and very much the government press release on this, uh, pushing the notion that uh, they've got to, uh, the people should absolutely be contributing to, through the, the various humanitarian appeals to the charitable sector. Uh, because, of course, the charity sector, Patrick, is now a, 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 a wing of the government, effectively. It is. It's a wing of uh, not soft power, but smart power. We saw this to great effect uh, with Syria and Ivaz and all the uh, change.org and the white helmets. And there was just a machine. It was a public relations machine, very well coordinated. You give this one time, you'll see this is going to blossom into a similar type of uh, NGO charity uh, fundraising complex. And in the case of Syria and the white helmets and the, and the Syrian rebels and all of this stuff, a lot of that, those, a lot of that money was diverted uh, into uh, helping and aiding and abetting terrorist groups uh, who were being right. armed and backed by the US, the UK government, the Dutch, and other EU and NATO member states. Okay, okay, so Ian wants to come in, but we'll just before we bring Ian on, we've got a clip of Nigel Farage here. Um, so let's just have a listen to what he was telling Fox News, because of course he's another influencer of a type. So let's have a listen to this. Nigel Farage, former yeah. Brexit party leader. Nigel, great to have you. It is the question right now. Should NATO be doing more? And if so, what should they be doing? If so, what should they be doing? Well, the obvious thing, of course, would be aircraft. You know, NATO have got state-of-the-art aircraft, uh, great squadrons. Uh, we could, if we chose, we could go in, take out that column, just as we did in Basra back in the Iraq war. It is there. It's a sitting duck. It's perfectly clear that the Ukrainians do not have the air strength to do it. But, and here's the problem, let's not delude ourselves. This is the biggest and most serious crisis the world has faced since the Cuban Missile Crisis nearly 60 years ago. And, you know, when we had mutually assured destruction between nuclear powers, MAD, as it was called, the point was that both sides thought the other side was rational. The worry now is that if NATO gets itself directly involved in open warfare with Putin's nuclear-powered Russia, how will he respond? And that is why NATO, for the moment, is doing nothing. It's fear. And, and for me, I have to say, emotionally, I feel we should be doing a lot more. You know, I think the Ukrainian... So that's enough of that. Uh, so it's pretty clear where he stands. But uh, so he's pushing the, the nuclear fear button. And he's also uh, very much pushing, the you know, banging those war drums as hard as he can. And, and he's, he's inferring that... Uh... Vladimir Putin is in a less than optimal cognitive state of mind than the 80-year-old uh, Joe Biden, <laughs> who uh, has trouble stringing sentences together uh, on a good day. Uh, so, I mean, there's two sides to that uh, that discussion. Yes, Ian. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's quite alarming listening to that from Farage, if he's suggesting that he thinks that Putin's deranged after what he's just said. I mean, that's, um, you know, quite alarming. But going back to what you were saying about virtue signaling and how that reinforces this kind of mass formations psychosis, there's also the the negative way of reinforcing it, as we saw when Lavrov addressed um, the United Nations um, Human Rights Commission, when everybody just got up and walked out. 
so they they you know they don't want to listen to what that you know i mean and and i think that's a a sort of derogation of their duty because they're supposed to be listening to what the others how how are they possibly going to resolve as they're supposed to any kind of conflict if the politicians that are elected to listen to to each other refuse to listen to each other as they did on mass in in that in that case but more to the point and going back to what we were talking about and how this is is set within the framework of incredible internet censorship which is happening right now i have spent almost the entire morning trying to find a, a text copy of what lavrov actually said because i wanted to hear what he said and more to point read it there are sources russian sources but they're all under attack they're, they're from from the uk you can't open up those web sources you need to use proxies in order to be able to just read what the what the Russian Russians are saying and that's and, and how can there possibly be any rationality at all on our side if we are unable to even understand what the supposed other side are saying well, the answer is our politicians don't want us to understand absolutely what the other side were, is saying it's yeah. very very dangerous this is only going to escalate tensions and by, by shutting off communications, by uh, canceling a whole country, uh, you're only increasing the, 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 the steps to a wider uh, war. And I might add, the U United Nations uh, Commission on Human Rights published a document, which everybody can go read online, you can Google it, the Donbass 2014 to 2015, massive human rights violations, and you could even class this as genocide. What was going on by the Ukrainian military uh, deploying it, the full force of its military against the civilian population of the Donbass. It was condemned roundly by the United Nations, mm. by the United Nations at the time. Have you heard anybody even mention this recently or anything related to it? No. No. No, it's very unpopular because it just totally destroys the narrative that Putin is uh, uh, engaged in genocide right mm. now. The genocide already took place. It happened. The government in Kiev, Zelensky's regime, and the Poroshenko regime have already carried out the genocide. It was in the Donbass. It's still going to this day. Right. It hasn't stopped yet. So they're still targeting, uh, uh, actively targeting civilians. This has been documented by the United Nations. So I think we've been totally gaslit. And you are seeing mass formation psychosis in action right now. Um, and that takes us to another Fox News clip. This is, uh, this is the senator from South Carolina, the, uh, as some people call him, the fairy hawk, the fairy hawk, Lindsey Graham, the Republican. He's very tough. He's very tough. He's trying to fill the boots of his good buddy, John McCain, who sadly uh, can't be with us. I'm sure I can imagine what John McCain would be talking about. But wasn't it John McCain that was on the stage with uh, Ukrainian neo-Nazis before the Maidan coup in December of 2013, John McCain? personally flew out. I think Lindsey Graham was in the Ukraine as well. There's some photos of him circulating online with these uh, Azov battalions and some of these characters and Senator Amy Klobuchar uh, as well and Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut uh, as well sharing a stage with neo-Nazis. Not a good look. Are they pulled up by the media? No. No, they're given more exposure by the media. So, so here's Lindsey Graham. Listen to this, this one. How does this end? Somebody in Russia 
has to step up to the plate. Is there Brutus in Russia? Is there a more successful Colonel Stoppenberg in the <coughs> Russian military? The only way this ends, my friend, is for somebody in Russia to take this guy out. You would be doing your country a great service and the world a great service. Sorry, he's calling for the assassination of another head of state. Yeah, that's a senior U.S. senator openly, globally calling for the uh, assassination of a, another UN Security Council member. That's Lindsey Graham. If you look at the front of the British press today, the Daily Mail's good. Somebody needs to take out Putin. So we don't have the headline today. We didn't have time to get it to screen. But right. look at the Daily Mail's cover today. Who's going to take out Putin? So this, this uh, talking point, Mike, seems to be uh, somewhat Spreading. Co coordinated, uh -huh. I would say, as well. But uh, what an absolute maniac. But Lindsey Graham never saw a war that he didn't fall head over heels in love with right. this is uh, one of his main features yeah okay and uh what's this one then well this is just uh this is on twitter here that's nancy pelosi there and look at this a new flag in america it's a hybrid uh -huh. flag it's got the ukrainian stripes there and there's uh heading for the other side of i'm not sure what uh jane barry here pa uh, tokenism and pandering have li have limits and this crosses the red line disgusting and disrespectful, but that's Nancy Pelosi. So this is just typical. I mean, we've got so many examples of this, but um, you know, it's, it's really about, what, what is this about, Mike? It's about canceling uh, Russia. This is what it's about. So now you can see big tech has moved in uh, and Russia's being taken off. Every single uh, pay, payment gateways are being hit. Of course, the media, YouTube shutting down uh, Russian news sources. Google's in on the act. Uh, trying to demonetize uh, any Russian-funded or associated state media. Uh, they don't want them to make any money off of their services. Uh, Apple Pay, as well as getting on the act. So this is like the full cancellation of all things Russian. So I don't, I, I don't know about you, Mike, but I don't think this is this may not particularly end well if end well. if they keep this uh, this up. So uh, how long until uh, Russian users uh, start getting banned from using? Facebook or Twitter, uh, how long till they start doing geographical uh, blocking? Or uh, if you say you're from a certain place, then they'll literally cancel you. I mean, we're getting very close to that point, right? Well, that's, uh, that's what YouTube did with, uh, with RT. They put a geographical block on it. Uh, so, so we're already seeing geographical blocks being applied in certain, in certain places. Uh, but the infrastructure is already in place, Patrick, because Sky, Tiscally, the other big uh, internet service providers in the UK already have content filters ostensibly to prevent uh, uh, child pornography uh, being played. But for example, uh, Sky by default blocks Rumble videos uh, in the UK. So anybody on Rumble, which RT has just moved to, of course, it's already blocked if you're on a Sky ISP by default. You've got to go and ask for that block to be lifted. The whole Rumble site. The whole Rumble site. So, so you know, the 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 infrastructure is already there for the Great Firewall of Britain, uh, which will, you know, we we already have that in China, but this is already in place, ready to be switched on in the UK too. So I think Disney Plus and some of these big tech uh, streaming services they've pulled out of Russia. Pornhub is uh, even pulled out of Russia. Okay. You know, uh, shock horror, uh, terrible there, right? <laughs> Anastasia, this ca cartoon's been pulled off of Disney Plus because it's Russian. What is this? It, it's just insane. This, this is what is it is. Culture yes. war. Here's here's more of the cancellations here. 
uh, Europe and Canada uh, closing skies to all Russian planes. Uh, there's just so many different stories like we've seen like this over the last couple of days. This one really caught everyone's attention. The University of Milan tried to ban Dostoevsky, okay, uh -huh. uh, from the curriculum because he's Russian. This is one of the great classics, okay? This is a standard for Western literature, but I guess not anymore. It's funny, he's a dissident, uh, uh, a dissident writer, and <laughs> so it's not a good time to be a dissident. But uh, the college backtracked uh, on banning uh, the Russian classicist here uh, under pressure from a lot of people, but you can see where this is going. And look at this. This is tantamount to burning books, right? This is tantamount to burning books. This is the sort of behavior you saw uh, in 1930s Nazi Germany, but it's being done uh, in the West. Look at this. Restaurant reviews for Russian cafes and restaurants. The trolls are out, and rather than commenting on the food and the service, they're basically putting up uh, <laughs> pro-Ukraine support Ukraine and down with Putin, et cetera. What's next? Do we, do we march people through the streets like Mars China, march them through the streets with signs around their necks? Struggle uh, sessions. Walks of shame and this kind of thing? Yeah, the, well, we're getting there. We're getting there. Look at this. Uh, disabled athletes, uh, you're canceled as well. Russian and Belarusian athletes banned from the Beijing Winter Paralympics uh, in the U-turn decision. I mean, this is just really... Uh, vindictive, okay, and uh, children athletes for the European Championships, they've been canceled as well. We're talking and, about 12-year-olds. And Russian drivers taking part in Formula One are being banned and, and uh, Russian money being banned and so on. So, so it's not just virtue signalers on, on uh, YouTube and so on, it's, it's right across the spectrum, sp international sport, the works. FIFA has canceled Russian sports yes. uh, as well. So, you know, the, the Russians are they've got a good idea of what the West are really like and what they think about the people of Russia because they're canceling them. Yeah. And then they aren't going to rise up and overthrow Putin. They're just going to hate the West more. That's what happened after the sanctions in 2014. You can see it in all the polling, uh, any pro-Western remnants, Mike, that were there from the 90s, they a lot of them got, you know, most of it got hammered and dissipated after the collective punishment that was waged on Russia. Now we've got one here. This is from the University of Iowa in the United States. Listen closely, listen very closely, or you might miss it. Listen what they're raising money for. Where can you give your money? Listen very closely. Roll this. Iowa State students are protesting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Many of those out on campus today say they have relatives in Ukraine trying to leave. The students say they want peace and they had a QR code students could scan, taking them to where they can donate to NATO. We just have to think that it's easy for us to say it's not my problem. But in reality, like as people, like we are all like this is our problem because we are all humans and we need to help. And that student says when she found out the invasion started, she was worried for her, her family members who are they from Ukraine are and was in shock. Did I hear that right? Yeah, you can donate the QR code to donate to NATO, not to the refugees, not to the humanitarians, donate your money. Getting students to raise money for NATO. Hasn't NATO got enough money? Have we got enough bombs? So yeah, this, you know, we, we're all for peace but donate to NATO. This is absolutely insane, mm. and, but this is becoming uh, the norm. And here's one campus uh, a person of note here. This is an academic uh, from Norway. His name's Glenn Deason. Uh, he's a top uh, international relations scholar. He's written a number of um, excellent uh, 
pieces of academic literature, including a, a book on Russophobia, by the way, a fantastic uh, book. So he's saying, listen to this, uh, I, have, I have now been called by two media outlets in Norway asking if I'm willing to apologize for having written for Russian media in the past and if I will promise to never do it again. The failure to bow my head in shame and join the mob will now result in articles about me legitimizing, quote, the war in Ukraine. I have explained and reiterated that I think this war is a strategic and humanitarian mistake, and I have nothing but sympathy for the suffering of Ukrainians. The efforts by academics to explain the Russian position in this conflict is deliberately confused as giving legitimacy and advocating war. Ethnic Russians must now denounce their background and, the, and state for redemption. Uh, everything is black versus white, good versus evil, and dissent from the party line is treasonous. Welcome to Norway 2022. And this happened to Piers Robinson as well for not disavowing the Assad regime and asking questions about chemical weapons attacks in Duma that were clearly staged, obviously staged. He was thrown out of his, uh, pushed out, really driven out of his academic chair position uh, at the University of Sheffield, hounded by uh, all sorts of protests. Students were protesting against him and the me mainstream media, the Times, uh, were also running in. So this is, we've seen this before, Mike. Yes. But this is a different sort of thing. This is, uh, this is taking old Cold War, uh, relic animus, I think, rechanneling it uh, into through the Russiagate channels of recent years, mm. and it's kind of you have to have blanket hate for the for the culture, the the country of Russia, of of Putin, of all things Russian. Anything that's Russian is potentially a bad influence. Mm. Uh, so I mean, this is just sick. So I don't know what where where, where to to go any further on this, but I mean, yes, uh, Ian. Yeah, I think what we're looking at is that we can, I think we're getting very close to the point where we can replace um, anti-vaxxer with anti-war. If, you, if you're against the war, then um, you're a refusenik. I think we are perilously close to that. So people that, that don't support war will be castigated. And I'm not, I, you know, I'm, that may seem an extreme point of view, but I genuinely think that's where we're heading. War on Russia, yes. but, but yeah, we were. If you, you don't don't support the war, then um, you know you're you're not a patriot. You're not patriotic. You don't love your country unless you want war. We saw this with Syria. If you know, if you didn't support the overthrow of the Assad regime, then you were a fascist. Uh, we, that's been leveled at many of us. And the Iraq War, the, the, you weren't a patriot, you weren't a proper citizen. That was also mass formation psychosis, right. like Matthias Desmond was describing. However, today, today there's some extra factors that uh, with, with social media and the digital uh, information streams, um, this happens much quicker mm. and it spreads much faster and you have to be on message more and more. And I think this has a lot to do with the decrepit state, the deteriorating uh, uh, mental and emotional state of a lot of people, quite frankly, spending too much time uh, with their faces buried in their phones mm. and not in the real world, okay? And I think this is also one of the things fueling it. This should be a topic for a great debate. Will it, will it get debated right now? No. I don't know. Uh, which brings us on to the video that uh, Ian mentioned earlier. This is from an Australian program called Q&A, 
Uh, yes, Ian mentioned this a couple of minutes ago. Watch what happens here. This is a mainstream question time type program in Australia. Listen carefully. So as someone who comes from the Russian community here in Australia, I've been pretty outraged by the narrative created by our media depicting the Ukraine as the good guy and Russia as the bad guy. Believe it or not, there are a lot of Russians here and around the world that support what Putin uh, is doing in the Ukraine, myself included. Uh, since 2014, uh, the Ukrainian government, together with Nazi groups like the Azov Battalion, have besieged the Russian populations in the Donbass, killing an estimated 13,000 people, Can I... according to the United Nations. That's late. That's yeah. late. Could I finish? Just, just quick, quickly finish, and then, and then we'll come to yeah, that, yeah. Put that to the panel. So yeah, my, my question is, you know, where was your outpouring of grief and concern for those thousands of mostly Russians? Um, OK, question earlier about Russia, and it's been playing on my mind. And, Sasha, people here have been talking about family who are suffering and people are dying. And I understand you wanted to ask your question about is there some reasoning for this, but you supported what's happening, hearing that people are dying. And can I just say I'm just not comfortable with you being here? Could, could you please leave? I've, I've been... It's really no, Sasha. I'm sorry. You, you you can ask a question. You can ask a question, but we cannot advocate violence. I should have asked you to leave then. It's been playing on my mind, and I'm sorry, but I have to ask you to leave, please. Okay. Would I, could I? No, no, no. Please, please, please. Just, 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 just out of respect. Just no, please. We're not having the conversation, Sasha. We, we can't have people advocating violence. And I should have asked you to leave. It's been playing on my mind. I wanted to have a, a proper conversation about these things, but I have to ask you to leave. I'm really sorry. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry for that. But you know, these things happen. It's live television. You think about these things. It's really been troubling me that we can have a conversation and we can look at where, where, where the arguments are and we can try to look at the sides of the argument. We can't have, have that. And I'm, I'm sorry, it should have happened earlier. Well, first of all, the young guy was brave for, for speaking out in the way that he did. But isn't it fascinating that they just don't want to hear any uh, or even discuss? I mean, if, 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 if what he could have done was he could have had a conversation about what uh, the young lad said. Yeah. But he decided, no, just get out. Yeah. So, so we, we shut down that, that point of view straight away. Because the young lad just torpedoed the narrative, yes. basically. And so what, is, what does the host do? Waves his hand for the security, for the thugs to go over and physically remove this kid from the studio. That shows you how brave uh, and dashing uh, all of these uh, virtue signaling, uh, quite frankly, what do we call them but petty fascists. Right. That's right. So uh, RT America has ceased operations. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, RT America has been taken off the air uh, in the United States here following a decision by DirecTV to pull RT from its channel lineup, uh, followed by the European Union banning. RT America has announced today it's ceasing production, laying off the majority of its staff. So it, the American firms are using the EU as, the credi as their sort of the credibility uh, behind their decision to censor and to deplatform uh, RT America. It's been going since 2007. And, and how many of those people are going to get jobs when RT's on their CVs? 
uh, probably before, maybe quite a few of them, because some have migrated to other mainstream media positions, right. uh, some high profile as well. But now, maybe not, maybe not. But you know what? They'll probably do quite well, because uh, a lot of them are quite, uh, they're quite good journalists. I mean, they mentioned a couple of them uh, in there. Caleb Malpin, who's the New York correspondent, who's an amazing on-the-street uh, reporter. Uh, he's, he's done so many great segments over the years. He should be able to get gainful employment, if not go out on his own, and Rachel Blevins uh, as well. Both of those uh, RT America journalists, by the way, Mike, um, they were uh, Twitter put on their personal Twitter profiles. The, the, the Twitter team went and found them and put Russian state media on their personal Twitter profiles. Right. And, and slapped that label on them, which I thought was a, a, a very underhanded by Twitter. But it shows you the new low that these uh, people in Silicon Valley are operating on. And these are the same people uh, that are banning people from criticizing the Azov neo-Nazi battalions in Ukraine, which we'll show you in a second. Well, we'll show you in a second. But before we get to that, uh, we just wanted to bring this on screen because, of course, what, what is one of the impacts of what's going on uh, going to be? Uh, potentially an increase in human trafficking. And Ukraine, of course, has been a center of human trafficking for a very long time. So uh, uh, this uh, website here, uh, basically making the point that uh, when Ukraine became a separate nation in 1991, they say, uh, the slave and human trafficking trade skyrocketed. So this isn't something that's happened in the last couple of years. This has been going on since 1991. Uh, the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine has worsened the issue. Uh, well, perhaps, but uh, as I say, this began well before the recent uh, 20, you know, it's, it's happened before 2014. So it goes well before the the ongoing. But I mean, what are we talking about here? 260,000 uh, Ukrainian trafficked victims uh, over the last 30 years. Uh, the International Organization for Migration, uh, Ukraine Counter Trafficking Program, identified it was able to help around 600 victims of human trafficking from January to June 2019 with about 16,000 victims having received assistance through the 19 years of the program's assistance, uh, 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 existence. So 260,000 victims, uh, and they have managed to, to help 16,000 of those. This is called the cost of doing business, right? Because this is a massive business. Now, even the State Department has talked about the trafficking in persons uh, from Ukraine. So this is the 2021 State Department Trafficking in Persons Report in Ukraine. Now, of course, they are blaming Russia for this, largely. Of course, but uh, it's not the case. Let's just put uh, a bit of, bring this graphic back on. We used this, I think, the last time in 2020 or so. Uh, so this, these statistics are, are probably not up to date, uh, but recent enough, 130 billion pounds profit made from human trafficking in the UK every year, right? This is a business, um, 21 million victims worldwide. 54% of them ending up in sexual exploitation, 38% of them ending up in forced labor, 8% in other, for other uses, including organ trafficking. Um, and so this issue of modern slavery is uh, massive globally. It is big business, but Ukraine has been a center of it for a very long time. Ukraine is one of the bread baskets of human trafficking, okay? And so the, the Europeans are all gushing now saying, oh, it's this democracy, this flowering delicate democracy uh, in Europe. And they're, they're like us. We need them immediately to be part of the EU. Uh, you, the, Ukraine is overrun with organized crime, with gangs. And now pr President Zelensky, the genius, has handed out weapons to anybody that would show up and take them. So guess what happened in Kiev? 
all, all, all of the, the, all, the gangs. All the gangs, the organized criminals are now carrying military grade weapons and they're shooting each other. They're starting to do turf wars in neighborhoods and accusing people of being Russian saboteurs. There's murders, there's rapes, there's robberies going. It's rife in Kiev right now. Uh, so this is what you're seeing uh, in many reports that we've seen. Uh, Gonzalo Lira has documented uh, some of this. He's in Kiev. He's an independent uh, journalist based in Kiev right now. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have time to get his, uh, his, his uh, testimony uh, on, but you can check him on uh, Telegram and YouTube, I believe. Okay. But look, this is happening. Zelensky handed out the guns. Is that going to help the situation or is it going to make it worse? It's probably going to make it worse, okay? So, and now they're saying adopt a Ukrainian family, uh, adopt a, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So they're just coming, they're going to be droves. So there's going to be a massive amount of human trafficking. Meanwhile, they're all clapping in the EU. And of course, it's not just going to be Ukrainians because it's going to be others coming through Ukraine as well. We've already seen, we mentioned on Monday's program, I think that, that many of the people that were camped on the, in the uh, no man's land between Belarus and uh, and Poland have simply marched south and they're coming through the southern Polish border because it's open for all Ukrainian refugees. Yeah. And this is this is increasingly well documented now. So they're going to take advantage of lots of people, the young young children, young girls, etc. So this is a big business. There's a lot of money that's going to be made in Germany, in the Netherlands and Italy. In Italy, in Britain and etc and the list goes on and on. So that's one of the wonderful byproducts of the humanitarian uh, operation. Okay, so let's move on to color mobs then. Well, we're gonna be talking about neo-Nazis uh, in a minute, and we just wanna remind people here, uh, this is from January 28, 2014, Ukraine being torn apart by Western-backed color mobs on an EU jihad. That's what it looked like at the time. Uh, I wrote this article back in 2014. This is only just to say, Mike, that uh, we have been following this story from the from yes. the very beginning. Uh, so this is none of this is a surprise to us at the UK column or myself uh, at 21st Century Wire. And what I said back then before the Maidan revolution was what we are essentially looking at is an attempted coup d'etat in Ukraine uh, and orchestrated by a cadre of Western NGOs and multilateral institutions in concert trying to unleash a more sophisticated version of the Arab Spring on Europe's doorstep. And I went on to say, imagine that the West can now threaten the sovereign nation that if they, if they do not join the EU or if they choose to renew their financial and economic ties with neighbor Russia, then they will suffer the consequences. Clearly, the primary goal for Washington, D.C. and European central bankers is to destabilize and then separate Kiev from Moscow, both politically and economically, and thus weaken Russia's proprietary position uh, in Eurasia. And finally, the side dish for the EU central bankers is the prospect of a new pillage and plunder territory on the fringe of Europe with hopes of dropping the debt yoke on that country, which they did, yeah. uh, and then privatizing and asset stripping anything that's not nailed down uh, in, the, in the Ukraine's economy. Uh, for financial vampires in Brussels and elsewhere, uh, it's a source of hard-to-come-by liquidity, a potential fresh carcass for the jackals in the gray suits. So that was back in January 2014. And yes, it did become uh, uh, an IMF uh, debt yes. pool, basically. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we've gotten to this point where we're at now. So, okay. but, but who's paying attention? 
uh, still they're not paying attention. And this is what they're not paying attention to. Look at this, electronic intifada. Uh, Israel is arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine. This is Asa Win Stanley here, very well-researched article. You can go find this online. Uh, we'll, we'll say to people, go and check it out. But this is just the tip of the iceberg here, and not just Israel. Okay, this is, this is an interesting side note here that we could, we could pursue. The United States, Germany, the Germans are sending weapons to neo-Nazis in 2022. So are we. And we are, and Britain yeah. is. So yeah. it's all about democracy and our, our European values. And this, Zelensky jails uh, opposition party leaders, shuts down opposition TV stations. There's murdered journalists in Ukraine. And so, so where, where are all these democratic uh, values? The biggest political party in Ukraine has been outlawed, the party of regions. Yes. Okay, where is, where is this democracy, this, this liberal European democracy? I don't see it, but we're told that it's, it's about Putin the dictator versus the delicate, fragile democracy led by the wonderful Churchillian figure, Vladimir Zelensky. That's not what's going on, no. no. So uh, here's what Facebook is doing. Facebook has uh, previously listed the Azov battalions and the neo-Nazis in Ukraine as a terrorist organizations, thus we're censoring all their content, but they've lifted the ban. Look at this. Facebook has lifted the ban on Ukrainian battalions uh, because they're fighting the Russian invasion. So Facebook has now said it's okay to glorify neo-Nazi militants yeah. on their platform. I mean, can you believe this? Yes. Uh, and by the way, uh, this, this report just came out. African refugees fleeing Ukraine are facing shockingly racist treatment with border guards, Ukrainian border guards, blocking their attempts to cross the border into Poland. And I think this is also happening uh, in Romania as well. Uh, and so they're literally uh, threatening them violently, uh, families being held, uh, and also being forced to pay exorbitant amounts of money and so forth. So they're saying, we don't want to let the blacks into Europe. This is the Ukrainian uh, security forces. Yes. So where are the European values? Where are the European values? Well, they're not to be found because they're neo-Nazi. So let's, uh, let's just bring this on then. So this is uh, Alex Rubenstein uh, saying, watch uh, Yevhen Karas, the leader of Ukraine's neo-Nazi terror gang, C-14 speech from Kiev earlier this month. Straight from the horse's mouth, he dispels the many narratives pushed by the left, the mainstream media, and the State Department. And we'll have a look at this in a second. But uh, this is, well, no, I, we'll, we'll watch this, uh, this clip first. Now, for people uh, only listening in audio, uh, he is speaking in Ukrainian, so, so uh, apologies for that. It's only a couple of minutes, and we'll explain what he says uh, briefly at the end. So have a listen to the, or watch the subtitles on this if you're watching. Не тому, що ми хороші, як нам кажуть, нам допомагає Захід, бо вони хочуть нам блага, тому що ми виконуємо задачі Заходу. Тому що ми єдині, хто готові їх виконувати, бо нам весело, нам прикольно вбивати і прикольно воювати. І вони думають, вау, давайте вже ну, подивимося, що це буде. Тому виник цей новий альянс, про який зараз говорять там Туреччина, Польща, Британія, Україна. Тут ми тут флагман, тому що ми затіяли війну, якої не було вже останніх 60 років. Так от, уявіть собі, скільки в нас зброї, скільки в нас ветеранів. А тепер уявіть, зникає Росія, вона розвалюється. Тут виникає там 5 Росії, там Ніда, Росії і так далі. На європейському континенті найбільше, тільки в Британії там, здається, більше. Розумієте, цей потенціал, 
цих збройних сил, це стане проблемою сразу для всіх, хто зараз там десь там намагається робити хенькі укови. І оце от є наша радість і наша печаль. Чому, щоб ви розуміли, чому так все важко? Не тому, що ми українці 300 років, наша дупа страждала, чому ж нарешті влада до нас не впаде, ми такі хороші, ми хочемо в Європу. Ні, це величезна потужна держава, і якщо ми тут прийдемо до влади, це буде і радість, і проблеми для всього світу. Тому це величезна амбітна задача. Ми живемо дуже в класний час, і тому перед нами стоять надзвичайна амбітна класна ціль. Не просто стати там частинкою європейської сім'ї, яка вже там розвалилася, а це є, вже йдеться про те, що нові політичні альянси вже глобального рівня, нові політичні виклики. Націоналістичні ідеї. Націоналісти, якби були там ключовим фактором однозначно і на фронті. Зараз дуже багато є спекуляцій. Ну, нацика вже ж було небагато. Там, ну, ЛГБТшники, там посольства кажуть, ну скільки там було там нацики? Ну, нацики там було там 10% там, ну, запаяних ідейних. Ну це ж питання в тому, це може так казати лише Йоуб, який не був на війні, не знає наскільки оцих от 10%, хоча там навіть може даже менше було. Я думаю, націоналісті було хай там даже 8. Ну наскільки це в пропорції ефективності впливу, наскільки це складало просто галапуючи безкінечну підвищення ефективності. Не було б цих процента, бо ефективність упала б на 90%. То тут не в числі мова. Так само, як на Майдані. Зараз вже почали ліваки, там фонди Бьоля, там і так далі перераховувати. Ну, націоналістів там було, там, да, вони були впливові, там. Та які впливові? Не було б націоналістів, все би це, от, пішло би сразу на гей-парад. Right, so, so the subtitles went past quick, pretty quickly, but what's he basically saying? Ukraine is uh, being armed as pawns of the West because uh, they have fun killing, basically, they enjoy it. Uh, he said that we, the, the C-14, the other neo-Nazi groups, started a war. Uh, we have the most javelins on the European continent, is what he said. Uh, he said the European family has already collapsed, uh, was something else, the other point that he was making. Uh, and then he went on to talk about the Maidan in 2014, and he was basically saying, you know, there was, uh, there was NGOs counting the number of neo-Nazis involved in, in the Maidan, and the, they were saying there were only 10% of the people involved were neo-Nazis. Well, he, he was saying, well, actually, the Maidan would have been a gay parade if it hadn't have been for the, uh, because of volley LGBT uh, influence there, they would have been a gay parade if it hadn't been for the neo-Nazi influence. Now, of course, they, C14 absolutely denies uh, that they are neo-Nazi, so, so that I'm sort of paraphrasing what he's saying there. Um, so, uh, you know, C14, uh, the youth wing of the Svoboda party, That's right? Okay. So, um, so then if we put this on screen, uh, because this is Times of Israel here, because this, I thought this was quite interesting. This is actually from uh, 2019. A Ukrainian news outlet fined for calling C14 neo-Nazis. Neo so in Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian uh, judiciary and government were not allowing the, the media to in any way suggest that this group was a neo-Nazi group. So they're protect the institutions are protecting the the some of these extremist militant uh, uh, ultra nationalist yes 100% uh, or, organizations yes. trying to shield because they, they know this is bad optics. Yeah. They know this is bad optics for for Europe. So this is, you know, they want to sort of keep it down, but they're the shock troops. They'll use they'll use them. That, absolutely. Uh, Ian yeah, I mean, it just it just the ridiculous situation, just denial of, of reality. Um, Keras was was interviewed in, um, I think it was 2015, by the BBC. He was on BBC Newsnight, where he said the, the absolute epitome of, again, he was saying, oh, no, we're not Nazis. We're not like we're not like the, the, the Nazis of the 1930s. 
be said. And then he went on to say that um, within the Ukraine, there are people who have disproportionate economic and power and influence over business, the Poles, the Russians and the Jews. That this the, the ideology is is almost identical to the ideology that was that some adopted in and, and I think this is in, an important point as well. Even if we look back in Germany during the 1930s, not everyone was a Nazi. No, the, the Wehrmacht and that weren't necessarily Nazis. You know, the Nazis had within that within that system a disproportionate influence over the some of the military aspects and some of and some of and the political aspects the same is true in the ukraine they've got the nazis then they are neo they are neo-nazis have got a disproportionate impact because of the support that they're getting from overseas and arguably you could say the same about the nazis in germany as well in the yeah. in the 30s it's it's the same and they are and they are Undoubtedly, if you look at their ideology, if you read their statements, they are neo-Nazis. Absolutely. Yes. And so, sort of the political identity, uh, militant political identity enforcers in the West, they have a disproportionate influence. And on, on Facebook, uh, some of our, our colleagues and friends have been banned on Facebook this week for warning people about the neo-Nazi Azov battalions, showing their insignias on Facebook, 30-day ban. Uh, so, because you're not allowed to criticize them. Your Facebook's allowing people to, uh, to to talk about them in a positive light with respect to glorify them. Yes. So, but so this, this has happened to, to at least two people we know. One of them is a combat veteran, British forces in Iraq. Uh, the other one is a well-known activist uh, and writer and philosopher uh, who had his ban overturned because he appealed, uh, basically. So Facebook's covering for neo-Nazis, okay? that's There's no mistake about that. The mainstream media is doing it as well. I saw somebody bring this up on a mainstream media outlet, and they, they mentioned that the presenters, oh, that's ridiculous. President Zelensky himself is Jewish. That is uh, so uh, a horrible thing to say and offensive uh, because you brought up the term neo-Nazi in Ukraine, and the president happens to be Jewish. But that's neither here nor there because people aren't talking about Zelensky per se. Mm. I don't know what his uh, position on neo-Nazism is personally, but what I am saying is that they have neo-Nazi uh, militant brigades that are in dominant positions in the country's military hierarchy. Mm. That's beyond a debate. This is established fact. And this is who we're arming. This is who we're funding as well. We're giving them cash under the table or over the table in terms of aid and javelin missiles, which are anti-tank and RPG type uh, uh, missiles, which can uh, take down passenger airplanes, among other things, uh, and kill lots of Russians, so it's okay. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's fine, that's fine, just uh, no problem. There's no neo-Nazis in Ukraine, we're told. Um, at the beginning of the program, when we were talking about sanctions, Ian uh, mentioned that one of the effects of the sanctions was gonna be to push Russia uh, in China's direction. Um, so let's uh, put this on screen. This is uh, uh, John Helmer's blog, uh, Dances with Bears. Um, and uh, he's got a translation of a paper written by Sergei Glazyev, who's economist, former Russian MP, former advisor to uh, Vladimir Putin. He's currently uh, Eurasian Economic Commission Minister uh, for Integration and Macroeconomics. Uh, and he wrote an article titled, uh, in Russian, of course, titled Sanctions and Sovereignty. Um, and he said, uh, 
The main result of US-European sanctions uh, was a change in the geographical structure of, European, uh, of Russian foreign economic relations in favor of China, the expansion of cooperation with which, uh, fully sorry, which fully compensates for the curtailment of trade and economic relations with the EU. Uh, and he goes on to talk about measures to tighten currency regulation, to stop the export of capital. Uh, he's saying that it's advisable to introduce taxation of currency speculation and transactions in dollars and euros on the domestic market. He said we need serious investments in, our, in research and development in order to accelerate the development of our own technological base uh, in the areas affected with, by sanctions. And he said it's necessary to complete the de-dollarization of our foreign exchange reserves, uh, replacing the dollar, uh, euro and pound with gold. But then he went on to say it's necessary to introduce digital rule as soon as possible, which could be used for cross-border uh, payment and settlement operations bypassing the banking system subject to sanctions pressure. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, Ian, first of all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's what the impact of the sanctions... One of the interesting things was that in um, uh, Vladimir Putin and, and Xi Jinping gave a joint statement uh, on the 4th of February prior to, um, to, to, to what's happened. Uh, and they were talking about closer relationships um and one of and, and one of the things the one of the things that the that the chinese uh, have agreed and one of the other things that they announced that day and actually putin announced was a, a deal to sell oil and to sell gas for, from russia to china um a deal to sell coal to um to china which is worth 20 billion so we're talking Already, we're talking about 140 billion dollars uh, worth of trade. Yeah, and that, um, and that, sorry, in that coal deal, 100 million tons supply, uh, that doesn't fit too well with COP26. No, uh, and I think, but then you know, neither does uh, many of the policies that we that, that we have in the West. I mean, we're not looking at descaling our um, use of fossil fuels as such what we're looking to do is carbon trade them so we're going to offset them we're still going to be carry on polluting often overseas you know with with things like the construction of indian coal-fired power stations that get carbon credits you know the, this there is no difference really between what is happening at the moment in terms of uh, the a re reorientation of I would say an international rule based order. They're both both sides, both Russia and China, and the and the and the Western side, are working towards promoting the same system. Russia and China are quite clearly, and certainly you know that's come that's more acute for for Russia has been recently have have been securing their economic relationship. Whether or not, I mean, the question has been whether or not China were aware of what may be happening in the next few weeks. Now, you know, it's difficult to imagine that China aren't weren't aware, obviously, because I mean, certainly the NATO were making all the noise. I mean, NATO kept sort of announcing when the invasion was going to be. They were announcing when the invasion was going to be while China and Russia were finalising these deals. So, of course. China knew whether they knew Putin was going to act or not. Who knows? It's difficult to say. But 
but this has been prepared in readiness for sanctions not just in readiness for sanctions but it also it, it gives them the ability a much much greater ability to weather sanctions so all these these deals are going ahead uh they're forging closer ties they're building a uh in in the arctic they're building an arctic silk road russia are in, massively invested china are massively invested in it they are building a, a eurasian economic power base Yes, yeah, so and on the on the Arctic Silk Road, Ian, I just want to uh, highlight this uh, this video clip. Uh, if you, people want to look for why Russia is building an Arctic Silk Road, it's actually quite a quite a good introduction to the whole thing. So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I mean, one of the ironic things in that is that 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 article in particular, uh, because that is obviously written from the sustainable development goal um, perspective. Um, they say that the reason that, that Russia are doing it is because of melting Arctic sea ice. Well, a bit further on in the article, if you if you read it, they also mention that Russia's part of this, their, their, their uh, development in the Arctic uh, is a fleet of eight of the world's largest icebreakers. Uh, and I, I think there's 16 icebreakers in total. Eight of them are nuclear powered. And these so the Russia, Russia are not planning on the ice disappearing anytime soon. Um, that's a bit of a side issue, I guess. Yes. Um, but sorry, but the, sorry, Ian. Patrick just has a quick question here. Yeah, just quickly, Ian. Uh, in terms of removing Russia from the SWIFT uh, payment system, this is the big push. Really, this is the big sanctions piece in the West, cutting it off from the the, the being able to do transactions financially uh, with Western banks and so forth. So taking Russia off SWIFT system globally, does this accelerate the adoption of potentially of uh, digital major digital currencies? Yeah, I mean, not. I mean, that's another thing. I mean, Russia are have already prepared. They've got a separate system, SPFS, which is their system, and China have got a separate system as well. Um, Russia have massively, as, as you were saying, have massively divested. I mean, their sovereign, um, their sovereign foreign fund, they reduced their dollar holdings to zero mm. in, in that. Um, they, they are invested in the euro, so that could be problematic. But they're also more, they're buying more yuan and they're buying more gold. They've got an alternative to the SWIFT system. So what, so banning Russia from the SWIFT system which is problematic for them in terms of international international finance encourages encourages the use of alternatives to that system one of which and russia and both russia and china are leading on this there's no i mean there are other countries around the world that you could say you know uh singapore perhaps and other places but in, in major major countries big countries um Russia and China are definitely ahead, a long way ahead on CBDC, central bank digital currency. China are have already released their first digital wallet, um, and they their their pilot rang in uh, Shanghai uh, in uh, I think it was 2020. Russia's pilot, which is promoted by Spurbank, um, first that was the first rollout. Um, that started in 2020. Their official um, central bank digital currency um, trial 
began in July 2021. So, so they are pushing hell for leather forward on central bank digital currency. And, and this is almost the perfect opportunity and the perfect uh, catalyst to think, OK, well, if we're going to be sanctioned, we need to think of some alternative monetary system. Yeah. So it could well, could well push the the world into the first the first significant use of central bank digital currency. And what yeah. a surprise that would be. Yes, indeed. And I might add there was a huge spike in Bitcoin uh, over the last couple of days. And yeah. a lot of people speculate those were Russians liquidating uh, their dollars or liquidating their assets via uh, Bitcoin as well. Uh, so that's another interesting uh, uh, note there. And I might add that uh, Porsche is now refusing delivery. They're not sending any Porsches Porsche. to Russia. Volkswagen is, is, I believe, closing down its manufacturing plant in Russia as well. So, you know, so European countries are being told to take the economic hit uh, for the greater good. OK, where have we heard this before? Uh, COVID lockdowns, business shutdowns. Uh, yeah, don't uh, worry, we'll bail Green you New up. Deal. Green New Deal. It's so perfect. This is just another example. Part of the economic transition. Yeah. Yes, 100%. Uh, Ian, we're well over time, so very quickly, please. Yeah, and I think that's very interesting what you just said there, Patrick, because, um, you know, we've always kind of, I guess the kind of, we always assume that a cyber attack might be the thing that takes down the financial system that leads to central bank digital currency, and that could still be the case but nonetheless the this these sanctions are going to hit europe so hard that we could also see similar problems arising in europe and if russia and china are using cbdc if europe sees cbdc as a way to help then then that's that's another way that you can get cbdc rolled out globally yes and quickly yes Okay, thank you very much for that. And look, we, we can't leave the program without uh, mentioning the fact that, uh, uh, completely change of subject, but mentioning the fact that Gavin Williamson has been given uh, a knighthood, of course, former uh, Defence Secretary, uh, but also a former Education Secretary. So, and, and a former fireplace salesman. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and of course, famous for uh, his, uh, his, his spider. His pet his spider. Pet spider. Cronus. Cronus. In, yes. in the glass box yes. on the desk. Yes. When he was chief. Tarantula whip. while he was chief whip. So, so let's just put this on screen. Apologies for the language, but I just thought it summed up Twitter, really. Um, so this is uh, Postman Pat here in the graphic. And, the, and uh, uh, morning, Pat, what's the news today? Says uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Goggins. And uh, Postman Pat says, Gavin Williamson has been given a knighthood, Mrs. Goggins. And we can't even repeat what Mrs. Goggins says because it's, it's shocking. So, so look, uh, here's, here's the point. Uh, why uh, is uh, Gavin Williamson uh, being given this thing? It's not because of what he did uh, with respect to exams and the fact that he destroyed uh, a, you know, a couple of years of education. It's because he was the chief whip, wasn't it? Because he, he has all, all, the, all the secrets in the, in, the, uh, in the cupboard, as it were. And so uh, They've given him the award to encourage him not to let those secrets out? Indeed. Or so who really gets the award? Cronus gets the knighthood, doesn't he? Yes, because uh, that was the threat, wasn't it? Yeah, so yeah. Cronus has been knighted, not Gavin. But anyway, that's an amazing story, isn't it? From fireplace salesman to knight in just a few years. I mean, that's just, what a success. Who and said, they talk about the American dream, for goodness oh, sake. <laughs> that's the British dream right yeah, there. That's absolutely. amazing. That's yes. amazing. Yeah, like, we've got to leave it there for today. We're well over time. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday.
Uh, hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye bye.